from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Louis Venters on February 22, 2016. Louis is the author of the book No Jim Crow Church, The Origins of South Carolina's Baha'i Community, which traces the history of South Carolina's Baha'i community from its early origins through the civil rights era. He relates developments within the community to changes in society at large, with particular attention to race relations and the civil rights struggle. The book's coming out is apropos to the recently released poll indicating the Baha'i faith as the second largest religion after Christianity in South Carolina. Louis retells the amazing story of the first known declarant of the Baha'i faith, Alonzo Twine, in 1910. It's a tragic story, but we discuss the mystical significance of such a tragedy with the amazing emergence of the Baha'i faith in South Carolina. Before getting into the book, I asked Louis where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Florence, South Carolina, but grew up in Greenville on the other side of the state, closer to Georgia. Uh, it was a small, relatively progressive, kind of growing southern city. I grew up in um, kind of segregated suburbs, but integrated schools, as a lot of a lot of Southerners did in the 80s and 90s. We had relatively successful school desegregation. So I had, a, uh, in a lot of ways, I guess, a pleasant childhood, an interesting little place. I left right after high school, not because there was anything wrong with Greenville, but because the world was a great big place. And my folks still live there, and my sister, and a lot of friends. And what was your religious life like growing up? I grew up Episcopalian. My father was... Um, Methodist, but joined the Episcopal Church that was my mother's church. We had a nice, warm congregation, good, solid Sunday school education. There's a lot of, I remember a lot of love and warmth and family, social kinds of activities. I remember loving the music in the church I grew up in. There were two different kinds. There was very traditional kind of high church Episcopalian with an organ and a fantastic choir. And then there was also, they did contemporary services where it was, you know, guitars and people clapping hands. And so it was a little bit of, a little bit of two very different kinds of musical styles. Had a, a good minister who preached a good sermon. And did you stay with the church after high school? No, I became a Baha'i when I was 13, actually. So maybe you Um, could tell us your story about how that happened. Sure. I guess I was about 12 when my folks and my sister and I were all in the car. Um, I I think coming home from my grandmother's house, and we heard Radio Baha'i for the first time. And what was that? Uh, this is the only Baha'i radio station in North America happens to broadcast from the town where my father grew up, Hemingway, South Carolina. I didn't know this at the time. All I knew was that there was this sweet, warm, 
African-American woman's voice on the radio. She said, WLGI Radio Baha'i, something like the voice of the Baha'i faith in eastern South Carolina, love, peace, and unity. I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was very attractive, but I had no idea what it was. Then she put on some jazz track, and my sister didn't really like the music, and so we didn't stay on it for long, but I said, Mom and Dad, what's... Uh, what is this Baha'i thing? They were both aware of the Baha'i faith before I was even born. My father, because of growing up there where the Louis Gregory Baha'i Institute is located, and actually his mother, my late grandmother, had rented an apartment to one of the first Baha'is that ever moved to their town. So he knew something about the Baha'i faith, or at least knew what it was. My mother had more knowledge and was very positive, actually. She said, oh, the Baha'i faith. They believe in the love and the unity of all people. And if I were not an Episcopalian, the only other thing that I would be is a Baha'i. I said, huh, okay, so this creates a good impression in this young person. She had grown up mostly in the northern suburbs of Chicago where the Baha'i Temple for North America is located. And it's a really extraordinary structure, and people all over that area claim it as their own, whether they're Baha'is or not. And she had done a report on the Baha'i faith when she was in high school. So her family all felt familiar with and, and warm to the Baha'i faith. So I came away with that good impression, and then um, did some a little bit of reading. I looked up in the encyclopedia and found a little article that I liked, I wrote to the Baha'i National Center, and I said, here's what it says in the World Book Encyclopedia that the Baha'i faith is. If this is true, then I think I would like to be a Baha'i, which then the Baha'i National Center sent back to the local Baha'i community where I was living, and so they got in touch and talked to my folks and talked to me, and said, is, is this legit? This is kind of an unusual letter. We don't get these every day. And my mom said, yeah, no, that's him. <laughs> and so we went to a few Baha'i meetings together, and I was sold. It didn't take me long at all. And how about your mom? Neither of my parents still have become Baha'is 25 or more years later. But both of them, in different ways, have said that they feel very close to the Baha'i faith. My mother says she feels like she has two faith communities, her church and and the, the local Baha'is, they still keep in touch with my folks, even though I've moved away, you know, I think really to the, the credit of that, that local Baha'i community. And my dad, I think, he said not too long ago, he said, I probably feel, you know, in terms of beliefs, I probably feel more like a Baha'i than, than anything else. But I think where he is right now in his life, he tends towards the nothing else either, you know, not, not any any religion in particular right now. So I think they've been pleased with, I, I hope and pray, <laughs> and they seem to indicate that they're pleased with the way I've turned out. In fact, my folks told me years later, they said, you know, when I first expressed interest in this faith, they said that they talked about it, and they said, well, he's 13, 12 years old. If there's something wrong with it, the worst thing we could do is tell him no, because at his age, that'll send him right straight into it, and we'll never see him again. They said, what we're going to do is to let him be involved, and we just have to watch and see how it goes. Which now that I'm a parent, I, you know, I think that's a, that's a pretty 
brilliant stroke of parenting. It could have turned out a lot worse than it did um, among all of us, but I think we've kept pretty good family unity since then. Well, that's great that your parents were so open-minded. Yeah, to their very great credit. Yeah. And they both, from when I was little, taught me to think about history and taught me to read and taught me to think for myself and ask questions. And we were in a church, too, where it wasn't frowned upon to ask questions. So I feel like my folks had a lot to do with my spiritual path, so I give them a lot of credit. And my grandmother, too, my dad's mother. You know, she rented this apartment to a Baha'i in a very small, very conservative, very racist little town. And she took some flack for it in public, in the post office, which in those days was like a big deal. If you call out somebody in the post office, everybody else can hear you. And so somebody said, well, why did you rent your apartment out to this foreigner with the funny religion? I guess she had a quote-unquote non-American last name. And my grandmother said, in public, so everybody could hear her too, she said, well, she's sweet and kind, she pays her rent on time, and she keeps the place up, and I don't think I have to tell you anything about who I rent my apartment to. <laughs> Later on, my grandmother was a little upset that I'd become a Baha'i. You know, we would talk, and I would try and explain, and for a long time, there just wasn't anything I could tell her that would make a difference. Finally, one time, years, years later, I got so exasperated with her, and I said, well, listen, don't you know you're the one who started all of this? If you didn't want me to be a Baha'i, you should not have been nice to that woman. And, you know, she never complained again. And by the end of her life, she had actually stopped going to church. I don't know why she wouldn't get out of the house and, and go. She said, oh, it'd be too much trouble for people to come get me. And she was the kind of person that, like, two dozen people from her congregation would have tripped over themselves to try and serve her and come pick her up and take her home and whatever she needed. But she just kind of withdrew. But when I would go over to her house, we were living down the road those last few years of her life. When I would go to her house in the evenings and she would ask to pray with me and I would recite Baha'i prayers and she would hold my hand like she was holding on for dear life. And that is some of the best prayer that I've ever had under any circumstances. So I just think, <clears throat> I believe that Baha'u'llah came for everybody and for every family, and there's just no telling how, what sort of influence the faith has in the lives of individuals that may never become Baha'is, but there's something about the Baha'i teachings and the Baha'i scripture, it's just compelling. And sometimes it compels people past their prejudices and, and reservations, and I've, I've seen that in my own family. And you said your father also strayed from the Episcopal Church? He still goes to church, but I think he feels that it's more a social glue mm -hmm. that he appreciates, a community of people, mm -hmm. but I think he's also become kind of a doubter in terms of some of the outward forms, and I think he wonders something about why churches are as segregated as they are in the United States. You know, most religious practice in this country is still segregated by race. Beyond that, also certainly segregated by class. Those are long-standing traditions, and that's not a Southern problem. That's an American phenomenon. And I think he notices that. So sees past, I think, some of the institutional limitations of the way Christianity is practiced in the U.S., so 
Louis, what did you do after high school? <laughs> that could have been a real source of disunity in my family, and it was for a while. But I, I actually took a year off between high school and college, and I went on a year of service to work with Baha'is in Togo in West Africa. And it took my parents and me a, a while to come to an agreement about what exactly was going to happen. And in fact, just again, to the credit of this local Baha'i community where we lived, you know, I was a teenager, right? So I, I had my moments and did not always live up to the <laughs> Baha'i teachings, especially regarding obedience to and deference to parents. Um, that was not my thing. It took me a long time to learn. So finally, my parents said, we're going to call the local spiritual assembly. That's the Baha'i local governing council because we need some help. You need some help. Um, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This was in our, our discussions about what I was going to do after high school. So they called the local spiritual assembly, which sent a couple of representatives to gather some information, and then they took it back and consulted on our, our family issues and, and then came back with some selections from the Baha'i writings that they had prepared and the, the instructions from the local spiritual assembly. And I will never forget this as long as I live. They said to my folks, these two sweet people, and they knew them all well, and, and I knew them too. They said, now, Martha and Ed, we would like to thank you for bringing this to our attention, and we would like to offer you this guidance and these selections from the Baha'i writings. And of course, you know that you're not Baha'is, and so none of this is binding on you. But we offer this to you as a gift, and please take it for what it's worth. And then they shared the passages. And then they turned to me in front of my parents. They turned to me and they said, now, you, you are a Baha'i, and your parents have turned to the local spiritual assembly, and the guidance that we will give you is binding. And then they presented passages to me that were about the unity of the family and the necessity of children respecting and obeying their parents. And after that, everything got a lot easier in my home, and we were able to talk to each other a lot better. We came to a decision together that I would pursue a year of service in West Africa. I had been taking French through middle school and high school. They wanted me to experience the world, and if I was going to take a year off and not go to college to be able to really benefit from the experience, and I don't regret it for a minute. So everybody's really satisfied with how that part turned out. Now I teach African history and didn't really plan on that exactly at the time, but that was certainly a, a life-changing set of events in more ways than one. And so, I, I, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, Louis, if you could tell me a little bit about your experience in West Africa for that year. Well, I had never been out of the United States before. Oh, and I thought I could speak French. I had taken French in 8th, ninth, all the way up through 12th grade. I had taken you know, extra French than most people did. And it's true that I could write some French, but well, there's nothing like showing up in a country to let you know that grade school foreign language instruction is just not quite adequate to the task. So the first month was my brain trying to handle this language that was all around me. Uh, but then literally from, I came home one night with a headache and completely exhausted and then got up the next morning and all of a sudden 
it, it all made sense. It, so there was some, some kind of critical mass in my head that just shifted. And then after that, I, I functioned really, really well. You know, I've heard that before from other people. You're not the first one to There's say that. that, that it, you just have to be in it for long enough. And, then and at some point, it just clicks. Yeah. I worked mostly during the school year that I was there as a tutor in the new National Baha'i Institute that was just being formed. And it was part of a, a worldwide systematization of Baha'i educational processes. It was just in the beginning stages in various parts of Africa when I was there in the early 90s. And then some of the lessons from there actually were transferred to other parts of the world starting in, in 1996. This is a, a movement that's been happening wherever there's a Baha'i community around the world since then. And so I was getting to know these materials that had uh, recently been translated into French and was working with, at that time, Baha'is would be... Um, selected from their villages in different parts of Togo and come to the capital city for six-week sessions where we were just intense study. And then the idea was that they would go home to these villages um, in the countryside and have skills to um, begin devotional meetings in their villages and simple classes for, for children from Baha'i and non-Baha'i families. And then the, uh, we would go visit them and sort of see how they were doing and so forth. Since then, the, the model has become a lot more decentralized. And so people don't have to, usually don't have to leave where they live in order to participate in these courses. But it, this was just getting off the ground. The other couple of tutors and I, we did some traveling to go back and meet these new friends of ours, you know, in their villages. So I got to see a lot of the country. Togo has, a, I think, about 30 languages, local languages. It's a small country, 4 million, 5 million people. But French was the colonial language, and it was it's the common language for all this diversity. So that was the language of the Institute. I got to at least get in my ears a number of other languages, just see people from all over, visited a couple neighboring countries as well. I lived mostly in the capital city, but got to see enough of other places as well to know how much I like the country. Truth be told, the, the capital city was just a big village. It was it's a huge, sprawling place, but every neighborhood had a lot of character. It's a capital city. It's got good phone communications and paved streets, and also when you get off the main roads and there's chickens and goats everywhere. And So it was just definitely a, an African city, a, a, this bustling city with a lot of people that had moved in from the countryside. So it was just a, a stimulating, amazing place with real people. I experienced a lot of love, more human warmth as just the regular way people do business than I had ever experienced before. And I'm from South Carolina, the most warmest, the most generous kind of hospitable place in, in the country is the Deep South, right? But, right? but I really had no idea what I was getting into in Western Africa. And part of what was amazing was seeing that even for white people from the South like me, how much of my own culture was African that I didn't realize. I sort of knew maybe a little bit, but I hadn't studied it really. But then being on the other side of the Atlantic, I remember people would ask me, oh my gosh, Louis, how do you feel about 
our food? Are you adjusting well? We have all of this fried fish and we have greens and rice. We eat these black-eyed peas and like how are you adjusting to the sweet potatoes and the watermelon? And I was like, listen, y'all don't understand where I'm from in this respect. I'm as African as you are. But I didn't know that either. They didn't realize the kind of cultural connections between them and the Deep South. And I was just getting to know it too. Now I get to you know, share all of that with, with my students in my South Carolina history class or my African history class. But to some extent, I know it firsthand. So when you got back, what did you do? I went to a, a small university, liberal arts school in another part of South Carolina. thought I was going to become a teacher so that I could go back to Togo. Things changed a little bit. I ended up majoring in history and French. I graduated without, at that time, clarity about what I was going to do. I worked for a while in a sustainable agriculture project at the Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute and stayed with my grandmother, that same grandmother. That was a good decision. For a short while, I pursued a graduate program in Switzerland at uh, Baha'i Inspired uh, University there. And because I took classes there, I ended up volunteering for a project that they were starting in Bosnia, a peace education project. It was at the same time that I was getting to know a young woman. And so we ended up getting married. And just as fate would have it, I left a week after that to go back to Switzerland to do my training for this job in Bosnia. And then she was able to join me a little while after. So we lived for a year in Bosnia. We weren't able to stay for the second year of the project. So we came back to South Carolina to be closer to my family. Her family was living in Central America, and that didn't seem like the place for us to go right then. I started graduate school at the University of South Carolina. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> in fact, PhD in history, got a job at Francis Marion University, where I still am, just before I finished my degree. I worked and tried to finish my dissertation, for a few years. Now I can just work. You've written a book called No Jim Crow Church, The Origins of South Carolina's Baha'i Community. Right. I'd like you to tell me what inspired you to write this book. When I first became a Baha'i, I started to meet people who would talk about the 70s, right? This is how people referred to it. It was these heady times in the 70s. And I wanted to know like, what had happened that people were so nostalgic about and sometimes got exercised about. Like, What was going on? And so I started to ask questions and started to get an idea that the Baha'i community that I was looking at in the 90s was in many ways the result of changes that had happened in the late 60s through the 1970s and into like the last bit of this phase was 1985 and 6 where large numbers of people in South Carolina had become Baha'is in relatively short order. 
and often not as individuals, but sometimes like whole families and sometimes whole blocks and neighborhoods, it seemed like, through these very well-organized campaigns where a group of pair or three Baha'is, usually young people, would go out and talk to people on their porches and so forth and sing and pray and explain the Baha'i teachings and people became Baha'is and then they would have these meetings at night so that whoever had become a Baha'i in different parts of the town during the day could come together and you know, everybody got to meet each other and, and then there would be visits to return to those homes, you know, do more prayer and deepening in the Baha'i writings, beginning to try and develop local Baha'i governing councils, the local spiritual assemblies and so forth. So this was a dramatic series of events in the 70s and 80s that had really changed the South Carolina Baha'i community and had changed the American Baha'i community, as I learned more and more, um, really had changed the outlook and the identity of what people thought it meant to be an American Baha'i, because many of the people who were embracing the faith were African Americans and were rural people, small town people, farmers sharecroppers. Or by the 70s, it's not even sharecroppers, it's former sharecroppers. It's agricultural people that are now out of work because of the mechanization of agriculture. So it's a whole different kind of folk entering the American Baha'i community. And this is a, a religious community that was already, from decades before, highly interracial, very unusual in its interracialism. So I heard more and more about this and asked more and more questions. And I think I was already, even as a kid, I was already on the path to being a historian because it seemed like I would always seek out the old people and talk to them and get them to tell me about those days. So anyway, when I went to graduate school, I knew that was the book that I wanted to write. And I just was hoping that I would find the right people to teach me how to write it, because you can be interested in stories and not know how to do the research and make it a, a real solid work of scholarship that people will read and that will be a benefit. So that was my real motivation in the back of my mind for going to graduate school. And it turns out that I had exactly the right constellation of professors and fellow students to work with. So I was able to get to work on different versions of this book um, over those years of grad school and finally my dissertation that I finished in 2010 was very well received and I found a press and had some excellent, excellent blind reviewers who gave me really good feedback and so this is a, a slimmer book than my dissertation. It's a lot more concise. It's got pictures, uh, which my dissertation didn't have uh, and that adds a lot because especially when you're talking about a an interracial community in the Jim Crow era, a picture really is worth a thousand words. These uh, photographs of black and white people together, happy, are really something something very special. So that's where the book comes from. I envision it as a first step because although the what got me initially interested was hearing about these stories of the 1960s and 70s and on, as I started to peel back the onion, as it were, I realized that I couldn't start the story there. I had to figure out 
where did the Baha'i faith first come from in South Carolina? And some people said, oh yeah, the first Baha'is came here in the 50s, or some, somebody said in the 40s. You know, as I kept on researching in grad school, it became clear that Baha'is were here as early as 1910, or maybe before. And that was the first story that I had to, had to write. So this book covers only the Jim Crow era from about 1898 to 1968 or so. And I hope that before too long, I'll be able to get started on a second volume that will take the story up through the early 21st century. Now, did I ask you to prepare an excerpt? I have a couple things marked that All I right. could share. Um, this is from the, the preface. Okay. And then I've got another passage marked that's uh, from the first chapter that's about Lewis Gregory that people might like. All right. I started to hear the stories as a young teenager shortly after I first encountered the Baha'i faith. During a series of growth campaigns from the late 1960s to the mid-1980s, Thousands of my fellow South Carolinians from all parts of the state and from all walks of life had become Baha'is. Diverse teams of young Baha'is had fanned out across cities and hamlets, talked with people on street corners and front porches, singing in folk and gospel styles, distributing literature, and conducting evening mass meetings in tents and rented halls. Their message was as simple as it was radical, and it was the same one that had attracted me. In the Orient, in the middle of the 19th century, Christ had returned. His new name, as prophesied in the Bible, was Baha'u'llah, the glory of God. And he had come with a new divine revelation that would bring the long-awaited millennium of universal justice and peace. They had found many ready listeners with African Americans in rural areas constituting the largest number of new believers. Some people, old and young, had dreamed dreams telling them that the Baha'is would come with a new message from God. In this modern-day Pentecost, the South Carolina Baha'i community had grown from some 200 members in a handful of cities and towns to some 20,000 in hundreds of localities almost overnight. It was the first such rapid expansion of the Baha'i faith in an industrialized country, a major development for a young world religion, most of whose growth outside its native Iran had been slow and measured. Although it still represented only a small portion of the population, the community had become South Carolina's largest religious minority. Moreover, its emergence had permanently changed the face of the Baha'i faith in the United States. In ways that most Baha'is around the country could hardly have predicted a few years earlier, the growth in South Carolina catapulted a small, poor southern state into the front ranks of the national Baha'i movement, confronting a faith community that had already prided itself on its diversity with new and often subtle challenges in the post-civil rights era. I was fascinated. As I met more Baha'is, particularly at the Lewis Gregory Institute, a training center near the low country town of Hemingway, my father's family home, I asked everyone I could about the heady days of the 1970s. Here was a story, I thought, that needed to be told. Little did I know that I was not only exploring the history of my native state and of my newfound religion, but also setting the course of my professional career. Do you want to hear some about 
Louis Gregory? Yeah. Just a, an introduction to Louis Gregory, who's in many ways the main character of this story. In early November 1910, a dignified but unassuming visitor returned to his native city of Charleston, South Carolina. A son of former slaves, Louis George Gregory had risen from a childhood of poverty, misfortune, and social upheaval to achieve a measure of success that few black men of his day could hope for. Gregory made his home in Washington, D.C., the country's leading center of African-American cultural, political, and economic life. In the prime of his life at 36, and lauded by the local black press as one of the most gifted writers and speakers in this country, he was a member of the capital city's African-American elite. With an undergraduate degree from Fisk University in Nashville and a law degree from Howard University in Washington, he held a comfortable position in the U.S. Treasury Department. During his recent tenure as president of the Bethel Literary and Historical Society, he had breathed new life into one of the oldest and most prestigious black cultural organizations in the city. Until recently, he had counted himself an ardent Republican Party activist, and he had supported the Niagara Movement, formed by W.E.B. Du Bois and other race leaders in 1905, to press for full civil and political rights for African Americans. Quite unexpectedly, however, events over the previous three years had profoundly altered his approach to addressing the nation's social problems. Louis Gregory was returning to the city of his birth not for business, nor politics, nor pleasure, but on a mission of a different order altogether. He was on fire with the spirit of a new religion, and he had undertaken a journey into the heartland of the country's Jim Crow racial order to spread its message among his own kith and kin. You know, I think about that. Here's another example of an individual who has made it in this world uh, materially and then chose a path of service that really threw that to the wind because in his walk of service, correct me if I'm wrong, he lost any prosperity that he would have had being a, an accomplished lawyer. I don't think he could have known in 1910 on that first trip to the Deep South as a Baha'i what the next 40 years would hold. But he had received a letter from Abdul Baha, the head of the faith, in response to Louis Gregory's letter asking to be admitted as a, as a member of the faith. That was the custom in the day. Abdul Baha wrote back and said, I hope that thou mayest become the means of unity between the colored and the white. Louis Gregory took that as a mandate. You see over the next 40 years the flowering of those words in Louis Gregory's life. And it did mean progressively turning aside from the material pursuits that he had been attached to and that other members of the African-American community were attached to. Because, you know, in those days, in, in the depths of Jim Crow, for black men to succeed, for any one black man to succeed on the terms that America had given them was a victory for the race. And for, in, in that kind of politics of respectability, 
for Lewis Gregory to step by step kind of turn away from pursuing his career and the rat race and all the, the trappings of Washington society, people thought it was folly. Um, he recounted that, you know, one of his former professors of international law wept over him um, as he became a Baha'i and, uh, and threw away orthodoxy and what, what does this mean for your reputation? But Mr. Gregory saw a healing of race relations, a revolution in race relations from a very different perspective than these the material trappings that in a very materialistic society many aspiring African Americans had also become attached to. I think it's a sort of moral courage and clarity that's hard to come by. Mm. And, and that was a hundred years ago. Mm. How much more materialistic has our whole society become and how much more difficult has it been has it become for people to to think straight about what's important and and how you're supposed to live but he was very clear from early on yeah it's inspiring i think so yeah does your book open up with the story of alonzo twine um no no uh, that was um just now, that was the first paragraph of chapter one that I just read, and Alonzo Twine is a little bit, a little bit further in, but it is during that first 1910 trip that Mr. Gregory meets him. So it's it's pretty early, yeah. Right. So it's a tragic story. I just want to let our listeners know that Alonzo Twine's the first believer, a documented first believer of South Carolina. You think? Unless and until somebody else comes to light. Louis Gregory's trip in November 1910 is that's the first record I've been able to find of a Baha'i coming to South Carolina mm-hmm. for the purposes of spreading the faith. And this person, Alonzo Twine, from Louis Gregory's letters home to DC during the trip, appears to be the first person who who accepted the faith in South Carolina. It could be that, you know, in the future, other records will come to light. I mean, I'd love to find more people from very, very early on. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as we know so far, yes. It's really a tragic story for the genesis of the uh, Baha'i community in South Carolina. Um, It is. It is. I, I think it's inspiring in its own way, but not happy inspiring. It's a galvanizing kind of story, I think. Mm-hmm. I just encourage people to get your book and to, as a minimum, read that story because <laughs> it's really uh, quite an incredible story. So shall I tell you something about it? Please. So Louis Gregory visited Charleston, his hometown, to tell people about the Baha'i faith. And you know he returns as a, a native son who's gone on and become a federal civil servant, and he as all the his family is there, other well-educated African Americans that he's had contact with are there. He's at home, and it's a society that's rich with connections for him. And so he goes to this meeting and that meeting, and there's um, it seems as though his uh, stepfather, who was a member of the Carpenters Union in Charleston, part of a, a very active local labor movement helped open the door and, and arrange um, meetings at a number of churches and union halls and so forth. So Louis Gregory wrote back to one of his Baha'i mentors in D.C. and he said, 
am just having the time of my life. He had numerous engagements to speak in churches, halls, and parties at the Colored Ministerial Union. He talked about meeting an Episcopal priest who had heard about the Baha'i faith in Maine. And uh, then he was going to be the featured speaker at Lecture and Musicale at the Carpenters Hall, of which that's the union hall of his uh, stepfather's union. And then in this same letter, he shares this, the news of one of the, the attorneys that he met with, one of Charleston's black attorneys who had become a Baha'i, who had accepted the message. He talked about how he was explaining biblical prophecies, and uh, then he says one of them had accepted the faith, saying that he was particularly impressed with explanation concerning clouds. He added that if Christ were to come through the literal clouds, he would certainly be hidden from half the earth in view of its roundness. So this little excerpt from Lewis Gregory's letter it, you know, shows that he's teaching not just sort of the social and intellectual uh, aspects of, of the Baha'i faith, but also he's explaining biblical prophecy. He's giving Christian proofs to these, uh, these audiences in Charleston. And this young man who became a Baha'i is Alonzo Twine, who was just a few years younger than Louis Gregory. They were from almost the same neighborhood in downtown Charleston. Both of their fathers were, were Union Army veterans uh, from the Civil War. They had overlapped at the school that they went to, and probably when Louis Gregory had come back home briefly before, he had taught Alonzo Twine's younger brother back at, at Louis Gregory's own alma mater. So these are families that had overlapped with each other, and so it's possible they knew each other pretty well before. Alonzo Twine was also an attorney. He had gone to Claflin University in Orangeburg, had studied with another attorney and passed the bar. He had argued a few appeals cases before the South Carolina Supreme Court. He was a trustee of his Methodist church, a very prominent old uh, African-American Methodist church on Calhoun Street. He was a part of a men's, black men's social club that brought prominent speakers and um, musical acts and so forth to Charleston to enrich the cultural life of black Charleston. This was uh, another young man on the rise, a part of this you know, newly educated uh, African-American elite, and he became a Baha'i. And Louis Gregory returned to Washington, D.C. At the time that Alonzo Twine became a Baha'i, there were no other Baha'is in the state. There were only a handful scattered throughout the Deep South. Louis Gregory had really been the first person to come to bring this message to large numbers of people in the Deep South. So Alonzo Twine was in many ways very much alone. Things apparently went well for a while, but then about a year later, there's news in a Charleston paper, and then it gets repeated in a black newspaper in Savannah, and even the Washington Bee in the national capital carries the same story. And it's this provocative headline that says, he had wrong religion. Mm. It's a story about Alonzo Twine being arrested and taken to a mental hospital in Columbia. 
And according to these stories, the cause of his illness was his having forsaken the faith of his fathers and accepting the new and strange kind of religion called the religion of Baha'i. It's not clear exactly the circumstances in which Alonzo Twine was arrested and condemned to the mental hospital. He may have been sick in some way, but then again, he lived in a society that had a long and dismal record of labeling troublesome black people as insane. So whether he was mentally ill or not, it does seem clear from the, the records that opposition by his, his former pastor and by his family has a lot to do with how he ended up in institutionalized. He was sent first to a Roper Hospital in Charleston, to the psych ward, which locals not so fondly referred to as the Black Hole of Calcutta. Um, I think it was not a very, very salubrious place. There's the commitment records that his um, mother testified on, that this attack of insanity, according to the, the commitment record, had come on maybe six months before in the form of, quote, religious obsession. The only symptoms of the disease, according to her, were religious excitement. Her son was suffering religious delusions. He was deranged on the subject of religion. He had remained regular in his work. He was not destructive of himself or others. He was not irritable, quarrelsome, or noisy. But the judge found him to be a danger to society, sent him by train to Columbia and had him admitted to the South Carolina Hospital for the Insane. As soon as he was admitted, he was diagnosed with manic depressive disorder, but like every other black patient in the hospital at that time, from as far as I can tell from the records in the archives in Columbia, he was never seen by a doctor again after that. And let me be clear about the kind of place this is. Even if Alonzo Twine was in tip-top health on the day he arrived at the South Carolina Hospital Insane for the Insane, just a short time there would be enough to have done him in. When it was founded, you know, a century before, it had been one of the, the leading lights of good treatment for the mentally ill. But by this point, by the early 20th century, it was a warehouse for broken people. It was full of filth. It was rife with violence. The staff was not trained, and the only way they kept order was by hurting people. The most common causes of death were tuberculosis and pellagra, which is this horrific uh, nutritional deficiency that turns out it's very simple to fix. But if the diet you subsist on is corn and grits and fat back and coffee, then you get this um, niacin deficiency where you develop skin lesions, swelling of the mouth and the tongue, this awful abdominal swelling and vomiting and diarrhea constantly, and then finally dementia and death. It is a horrific disease that doesn't exist anymore because now we know what people need to eat, but this is what people died of in the 
mental hospital, and it was throughout the southern countryside at this time because the agricultural economy was in complete disarray. So a really a, a horrible place where the only thing that I think kept Alonzo Twine alive as long as, as he remained was the Baha'i books that he brought with him into the asylum. But then there's another article that appears in 1921, more than a decade later, by Alonzo Twine's pastor that explains what happens next. So the pastor from Charleston is uh, transferred to another Methodist church in Columbia, and the parents asked him to come and, and visit their son. So he did. He said in this uh, newspaper column, the first time we called to see him, he held in his hand a little pamphlet, and we asked him for it. He readily gave it to us, and we found it to be a book on the Baha'i religion. We took it from him and brought it home, knowing that it was this that caused him to lose his mind. Mm. And so I can just see in this cell where Alonzo Twine is confined with no furniture, just straw on the ground with lice and untold kinds of vermin. He's sitting there with his last Baha'i booklet. And the pastor comes and takes it away because it was this that had caused him to lose his mind. That was probably the only thing that was, that was his only lifeline, and now it was gone. So he managed to stay alive in the asylum for three years before he finally died of pellagra in October 1914. I.E. Lowry, this minister, brought the body back to Charleston at his parents' request uh, for a funeral at, at their church. I mean, this is a harrowing story. There's no two ways about it. In a way, it's easy to think of this life as a a waste. I mean, this is a tragedy. And it's true that this was the first foray of a Baha'i into the Deep South, and he's one of the, the first people in this whole region that embraced the faith and tried to stand in his society as a Baha'i and experienced isolation and persecution for it. You think if even a, a few members of his church or other members of his profession or other people in his family had become Baha'is at the same time, then maybe this story would have turned out very, very differently. I think the only, the only way to get a proper perspective on Alonzo Twine's life and death is knowing what the Baha'i faith is like in South Carolina a hundred years later when it's the, the second largest religious community after Christianity, obviously, when this is one of the strongest Baha'i communities in the United States. His life wasn't a waste. His, his death was not a waste. I think in mysterious ways, but in ways that I think people of, of most religious backgrounds can appreciate, his life is a seed somehow that's planted but th but this seed has to be has to be cracked open you know the seed has to 
has to disappear, has to give up itself in order for a great tree to grow. I think that analogy is helpful in appreciating, um, helping to wrap our minds around what amounts to religious martyrdom in a sense, you know, giving one's life for one's faith in horrible circumstances, what are the fruits of that kind of sacrifice in you know, decades and centuries to come after a person does that, after a, a special soul does that? I don't know. I, I, still, I still think it's a hard story. It is. Um, but I do try and make sense out of it. I mean, the only perspective I know to help is seeing it with spiritual eyes and seeing it as uh, taking a really a long historical view of how social change happens. You know, and this is this is not unusual in religious history. I mean, I'm not even trying to draw an analogy between Alonzo T- uh, Twine and Christ, but if you even look at Christ was really an unknown mm. and spent three years preaching to the people and then then crucified, how did that turn into a worldwide religion? Certainly Alonzo twice isn't of the same caliber, but certainly I think I think you're right, Louis. I think there is this mystical a connection between sacrifice and the fruits that bear fruit as a result. So. And yeah, and maybe it's not Maybe it's a more apt analogy to to compare him with so many Christian believers in the first couple hundred years after Christ, who in in the context of their society faced opposition and ostracism and and often death. And in a sense, you know, those are the spiritual founders of of the Christian community. You know, inspired inspired by the word of of Christ to, to give themselves. And there are similar stories in Islam as well. So there's something, there is something mysterious in that, but I think something um, universal and, and important about the nature of sacrifice. What are the forces that turn the world? What are the forces that guide the advancement of human civilization? And I think giving of oneself, understanding clearly the purpose of one's life. These are among, I think, the most the most important lessons that really do change the world. Mm. Well, Louis, thank you so much for bringing this to light to people and the the work you've done and sharing your story with us. And I look forward to the next segment. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, me too. Me too. This one took a long time to write, and I think the the next book will be bigger. Uh, but I'm blessed. There are a lot of people who are still living that need to be interviewed and who have uh, treasures in their attics and um, back closets, papers in boxes that starting to get access to. So it's pretty exciting. There's a lot out there. That's great. A lot out there, yeah. Well, yeah, good luck you. to your endeavors in the future. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Louis Venters, author of the book, No Jim Crow Church, The Origins of South Carolina's Baha'i Community. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for 
a Baha'i perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJOP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.